Uh, so we've been uh, in this series on the book of uh, Hebrews, and we've, uh, the writer of Hebrews has been making this case about uh, turning to Jesus, uh, turning to Jesus to be specifically our priest, where we're at right now, to be our priest, to make, for, uh, to make and allow for forgiveness of our sins, to connect us back to God, to give us rest and joy and hope and peace and all of these things. And uh, today, uh, we're going to get into Hebrews 7, and we're going to examine uh, Jesus' credentials to do this. Uh, that, that why Jesus is the one we should be turning to. And I, I want to give you kind of a heads up. We're going to examine this uh, because this is what Hebrews 7 does. Uh, we're going to examine this from very much a Jewish mindset. And so I'm going to need you uh, to walk with me. Uh, we're going to twist and turn. And towards the end of uh, the, the message when I'm reading our scripture, uh, you're not going to have a panic attack thinking I'm just getting into the message because we're actually almost done at that point, all right? So... Um, uh, but we're, we're going to do uh, some twisting and turning and sto- Jewish storytelling and um, hopefully arrive where, where God would like us to arrive. So, all right, let's pray together and then we'll get into it. All right, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you that he is an incredible high priest for us um, and that he's faithful and he's righteous and he's good. Um, I pray that we would turn to him for our salvation and our joy and our hope and our peace and everything that he wants to bring. We thank you for his work on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. It's in his name we pray, amen. There's an old uh, kind of preacher's joke about a man uh, whose dog passed away and so he was really, really feeling beat up about it and so he went to the closest church to his home, uh, which was a Catholic parish and he went and he talked to the priest there and he said, would you do a service for my dog? And uh, the Catholic priest said, well, we just, we don't do that. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, uh, that, that's just not really, we, Catholics, we just don't do that. But I'll tell you, across town, there's a Baptist church. I don't know what their belief is on this whole thing. You might want to go and talk to him. And he said, well, thank you so much, Father. Um, do you think that about $10,000 is enough of a donation uh, to cover the, the funeral expenses for my dog? And the father said, oh, my goodness, you didn't tell me your dog was Catholic. Um, <laughs> right? So... Uh, my parents uh, my parents became Protestants the year I was born. Uh, my dad had been kind of a priester, uh, Christmas and Easter, uh, sort of a tender with, with his mom and dad. And uh, my mom uh, grew up in this very uh, German Catholic family, um, really big family, uh, really, really Catholic, all right? So um, you can imagine, uh, they, they took their faith very, very seriously. And so you can imagine when my mom Uh, transferred her membership to a Protestant church, you can imagine how much that bothered my grandparents. And uh, it really, really did. They thought she was making a a huge mistake. But I say all that, how many, just out of curiosity, how many of you grew up Catholic? All right, just just a few of you. Um, That that I say that because I've gone uh, to more Catholic weddings and uh, Catholic funerals and Catholic masses than I can even count. And and when I was growing up, and maybe you feel this way as well, Scott touched on this in his message, the idea of the priesthood uh, within Catholicism really confused me. Um, Because when I was growing up in a Protestant church, we called uh, our kind of spiritual leader, we called him minister, we called him pastor, we didn't call him our, our, our priest. And I think it's important to remember that Catholics do not tie their sense of the priesthood back to Old Testament priesthood. 
right? That, that, that's not really the argument. They're not trying to go back to the way the Old Testament practiced the priesthood. It actually goes back to a story in the New Testament where Jesus is talking to his uh, apostles and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And the apostles start listing things off about Jesus. They say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets, and they go through this whole thing. And Jesus says, no, no, who do you say that I am? To, to his apostles, and Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? That, that, that's who we believe that you are. And this is considered the great confession of faith. As a matter of fact, we think this confession is so great that whenever someone is baptized or whenever somebody places their membership here, we have them repeat it after us because that, it is the great confession of our faith. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. We put all of our hope and our faith in you. We turn to you for our salvation. We turn to you, Jesus, for our joy, hope, and peace. And Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Peter, for this was revealed to you not by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And Jesus was talking about building his church on this rock. And the question between Catholics and Protestants the, the, the debate is, what rock was Jesus really talking about? Catholics believe that the rock was a who. That the rock in that moment was Peter, and that Jesus was establishing a new type, a New Testament priesthood, and Peter would be the, the original kind of priest. Most Protestants, including myself, believe that the rock was the confession. It wasn't Peter, it was the confession. And so the entire faith and, and the entire uh, thing that we're doing here needs to be built not on Peter, but on the confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and we turn to you. All right, so now with that groundwork being laid open, and we're going to do more groundwork, but open up to Hebrews 7, all right? This is picking up on a conversation. We got out of order a little bit because uh, I've been going uh, back and forth uh, to Michigan uh, and had to miss a Sunday in there. But this is picking up on a conversation from Hebrews 5 that Scott preached on about three weeks ago. And I want to encourage you to go to the app or go online and listen to that message because it was really excellent, well-researched, and it lays the groundwork for Hebrews 7 very, very well. So in the first century, many Jewish men and women and, and families were coming to faith in Jesus, and, and they were coming from Judaism to, to Christianity, and they were struggling. And what they were struggling with was, how can we operate within this new faith system when we don't have a priest and we don't have a sacrificial system and we don't have a temple? How can we as, as Jewish Christians operate within this, uh, within this system when these things are so entrenched in our sense of faith? And they're so entrenched in our background that now you're telling us we no longer have a high priest, we no longer have a temple, we no longer have a sacrificial system. And part of the, the goal of the book of Hebrews is to say, no, you actually still have all those things. You have a high priest. It's Jesus. You have a temple. It is the body of believers. It, it is the Holy Spirit living in you. And you have a sacrificial system. It is Jesus on the cross. And so he's reminding them that all of those things that, that you feel like you need, you have them and they are all found in the person and the work of Jesus. But these Jewish Christians, make no mistake about it, this was hard because they're having to operate in this new faith system with, without a temple, without a high priest, without a sacrificial system. It was hard. It was challenging. And these early Christians had to figure out what their faith was going to look like. But you know what happened? About two or three years after the book of Hebrews was written, everybody had to struggle with this issue. And I'll tell you why. Because in 70 AD, 
the temple was destroyed. So in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. So every Jewish person then had to struggle through this. What are we gonna do without the temple? What are we gonna do without some of these systems that, that are now being dismantled? So the teaching in the early church was simple. You have a high priest. You have a sacrificial system. You have a, a, a temple. And if you were a Jewish man or woman living in the first century, the very first question you would ask yourself when they say, hey, Jesus is your high priest, here's what you would think. I love Jesus. He can't be my high priest. He's not qualified. They say, what, what are you talking about? That he's not, what, not qualified. Um, the, the, in, in the Old Testament, God established the line of the priest through, through the line of Levi. Jesus was from the line of Judah. Um, in the Old Testament, in order to be a priest, uh, Aaron was the kind of original one, and then all the priests kind of came uh, from the tribe and line of Levi after that, and that, that's just how the priesthood happened, that, that um, the, the line of Levi produced all of them. Uh, Aaron was originally the brother of Moses. You may remember his story a little bit, that God called Moses to go release his people from slavery, and Moses said, I can't do that. I'm not an eloquent speaker. I, I'm not a good speaker at all. And God essentially says to Moses, take your brother, uh, Aaron. He, he, he can do that for you. And so Aaron goes with Moses and um, establishes then, if you ever want to read about this, in Exodus 28, if you're taking notes, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but in Exodus 28, the priesthood is established from Aaron. The priesthood is established eventually through the Levi uh, line of that tribe. And so uh, many people believe that was the beginning of the priesthood. So follow the logic here just for a minute. The priesthood started with Aaron and the Levites. God ordains in Exodus 28 that the future priests will be from the tribe of Levites. Jesus was not a Levite. This creates a problem. But here's the question of Hebrews. What if that line of thinking is faulty? Right? This is what Hebrews is going to challenge them on. What if that line of thinking is faulty and, and the premise that the priesthood started with Aaron and with the Levites, what if that's actually not true? What if Aaron was the first priest in the law era, once God established the law? Aaron was the first priest of the law era, but he was not the first priest, period. And so the book of Hebrews chapter seven is gonna tell a story for us. Um, and it happens before Moses. It happens before Aaron. It happens before the law era is ever established. It is the story of a guy named Melchizedek. Now, let me catch you up on this story real quick, all right? Um, so the story goes that in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to leave his country and his people and his father's household and go to a land that was going to be promised to them. And Moses uh, obeyed mostly, all right, just like the rest of us, right? <laughs> he obeyed sort of, right? That, that's uh, a lot of our stories. And um, Abraham leaves and he takes a member of his family with him that he was not supposed to take. And, and the member of the family was named Lot, all right? And Abraham takes Lot with him. It's a disaster, all right? Abraham and Lot's families, they both um, start uh, bickering and all that. So they decide they need to separate. And uh, Abraham lets Lot choose first. Where, where do you want to settle? I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And he says, I'm going uh, to settle kind of near uh, these, th this area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you've probably heard those cities before, all right? Um, so Cheryl and I, let me kind of plant the seed with, with, with this. Cheryl and I, whenever we're watching TV, all right, whenever the commercials uh, for Pure Michigan come on, 
we get kind of nostalgic and a little bit weepy. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie to you, all right? You know, about, it's, it's, a, it's a commercial about the beauty of that estate. And what they're doing is California has very similar commercials. They're trying to convince you to vacation in Michigan, all right? And you should, all right, just so you know, all right? <laughs> Um, it, it's, it's a beautiful state. You should vacation there. It's, it's a beautiful, California is wonderful too, but they're trying to convince you to vacation to these places. It's an advertisement for the state. Well, the Bible has a, a similar, although quite different advertisement for Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's the advertisement. You can imagine Tim Allen's voice saying this, right? The people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? <laughs> This is who they were, and this is where Lot ends up. So long story, very short, a world war breaks out. Sodom and Gomorrah and three other kings, so you got five kings on one side, and you got four kings on the other side, and you, this kind of uh, major war breaks out, and Sodom and Gomorrah are defeated, and their people and their goods are taken into captivity, including Lot, Right? So all these people are taken into captivity. Abraham, even with all of the difficulties, Abraham hears that his uh, relative Lot has been taken into captivity uh, during this war. And I love what the text says. It says, Abraham got about 318 trained men and he went to get Lot back. 318 trained men against four kings and their armies. But Abraham pulls together 318 trained men and he wins. All right, so when God is with you, never underestimate what can happen. And he recovers all the stuff, all the people. He gets Lot back. And so the king of Sodom uh, and the king of Salem, we're, we're told, they meet Abraham out on the plains. And uh, this is what happens. All right? Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. All right? Before Moses, before the law, before all that stuff, all right? Melchizedek was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham, saying blessed, uh, saying, blessed by Abraham, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to the God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So which as a side note, this is not what this sermon is about, but a lot of people will say like tithing is law. This, you can use this story in the same way as saying the priesthood is law, right? That this happens before the law is, is established. So you have this guy, Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest, and he blesses Abraham. So a question emerges from this text, and maybe you have it too. Who on earth is Melchizedek? Um, I, we're going to get exposed to all verses today. You know how many passages of scripture there are on Melchizedek? Melchizedek? Four. And uh, Scott hit on one three weeks ago, so I left that one to him. You're going to get all three of the references today. That's in total what we know about Melchizedek. So there are some uh, theories that emerge about who this guy was. One is he was exactly what the text says he was. He was a king and a priest. Shocker, right? <laughs> that you can read the text. It says he was a king. He was a priest. Uh, he was from what would become Israel. A literal reading of the text says he was a king and a priest. Another is that he was someone who was raised up by God to be a Christ figure of the Old Testament. And so that we are supposed to read this text and we are supposed to see Jesus in Melchizedek, which is what the writer of Hebrews argues, right? It's not that he wasn't a real guy, he was a real guy, but God raised him up to like point us so we'd recognize Jesus. The other theory is that he actually is Jesus. 
that this is Jesus making an Old Testament appearance uh, to, 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 be this, to be this priest and to be this king. The truth of the matter is we have no idea who he is. We, we don't. Um, outside of uh, the passage I'm going to show you in Hebrews uh, and the one that Scott showed you, there's only one other reference. It's in Psalm 110. So let's go ahead and look at that real quick. This is a Psalm of David. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on, on your day of battle Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from a morning's womb. The Lord has uh, sworn, and you will not change your mind. Here's what the Lord swears. This is a, a kind of a messianic psalm. It's looking forward to Jesus. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to study Hebrews in just a moment, and when we do, you officially have everything the Bible says on Melchizedek. That's it. All right, that's it. So this messianic psalm is looking forward to the day the Messiah comes, and he says about the future Messiah, you are a priest forever. You're a forever priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is this mysterious person of the Old Testament. He's a mysterious priest that came before the law was established. So there's no recording of his birth. There's no recording of his death. And so the, the, the psalmist kind of latches onto this idea. And a lot of people believe this, that Melchizedek was a forever priest. Right? We have no, it's like Elijah, right? Um, uh, you're, you're reading through the book of uh, uh, Kings and all of a sudden it says, now Elijah the Tishbite. Now Elijah the Tishbite, where'd he come from? Right? He just happens onto the scene. Melchizedek is the same way. No record of his birth, no record of his death. And so this idea formed that he was going to be a forever priest. Melchizedek's priesthood was not established by the law. It was not established by a family tree. It was not established by his birth in any way. His priesthood was established by God. Now let's go back to our argument here. Remember, the argument was that Jesus can't be our priest because Jesus wasn't a Levite. He wasn't from the right family line. No, he's God's son. And God, he said, Jesus is like Melchizedek. Jesus is a forever priest. And he is a priest from that line in this way as well. He is our forever priest. And he is a priest because God said he was a priest just like Melchizedek. And that, that's the argument that's forming here, all right? So Hebrews 7, verse 11. We're not freaking out, all right? I told you this would be toward the end, all right? In preaching language, that's like 20 more minutes, all right? So, all right, I'm gonna pause as we work through this just a little bit. I'm gonna pause and make a couple points. But, all right, you've got all the background now, all right? Verse 11, all right? Uh, verses one through 10, as a side note, kind of lays out... Um, in about two paragraphs, what I just took 25 minutes to do, all right? So maybe I should have just read this passage, I don't know, but all right, uh, verse 11, it felt like a lot of scripture to read all in one sitting, but now I've talked for 25 minutes, all right? So, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why is there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. 
So he says, man, he's saying to these Jewish men and women, if the law is so great, why is there a need for a, a, another priest to come? All right, four, verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe and no one from that tribe has ever served the altar. All right, so he's feeding right into the argument here. No one, this has never happened before except that it did with Melchizedek. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah uh, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. It says, you wanna know, we're gonna get to this in a minute. You wanna know Jesus' qualifications? His qualifications to be your priest are his indestructible life. It's not from his family line. It's not because nothing was ever said about somebody from the tribe of Judah serving his priest. So it's not from that. It's not from family ancestry. It's from the power of his indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Oh, boy, that's, you know, people reading that would have been real irked, all right? But for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Other priests came without an oath, but he became an, a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus' qualifications to be a priest are that God said he'd be one, all right? So, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives and he always intercedes for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. All right. I hope you can see why we went through all that background. Because now when you're, you, you can see all that background as we, read through that, uh, as we read through that text. Nostalgia is a very interesting thing, isn't it? When you look back on something that you thought was great, and then it, it gets pulled into the future and you see that's not so great. Some of you know I've been coming back and forth from Michigan quite a bit. And uh, I've been in my hometown quite a bit, um, uh, uh, helping my dad out, um, uh, who's uh, in, a, in a health crisis. But, um, so one day I was at the courthouse, which is in the town that I grew up in, and we used to have this tradition when I was growing up, of we would go, there was a candy store right by the uh, courthouse, and we would go and we would get chocolate stars from the candy store, and then we'd walk over to the library and we'd see a movie. We did this pretty much every Saturday all summer long. And uh, we would go in there and get chocolate stars, go watch a movie at the library. And so I walk out of the courthouse and I look across the way and there it is, Keen's Candy Store. I said, you know what, I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna get some chocolate stars for my ride home. And so I went in there and I got a little thing of chocolate stars. They were terrible. 
They were bland, they were dry, they didn't taste good at all. Nostalgia was messing with my memory. It was affecting my memory. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's addressing the nostalgia of these believers. These believers who were raised Jewish and they're operating under this belief that the old way was so much better. We need a human priest. We need sacrifices. We need a temple. And Hebrews point is that Jesus provides for all of those things and it's better. He's better. And he makes two arguments about, I think two, yeah, two arguments, all right, for why it's better. And the first one is about the nature of the priesthood itself. According to verse 16, the old priesthood had to do with ancestry and regulation. All right. So in other words, if you were a Levite and you had the family ancestry, you could become a priest. And as you know, if you've read the Old Testament, that sometimes worked out great for Israel. And sometimes it didn't. Right? Because human beings are human beings. Some were greedy, some were evil, some did not do a great job at all. The Old Testament has multiple examples of this, where a priest, just because of their family ancestry, a priest moves up into the, a spiritual leadership role over the people, and they're a train wreck. They're terrible. And the only reason they're there is their family ancestry. This is the fallen nature of human beings. And we understand this so much, because your dad was maybe a genius at money. He was a banker. But your brother can't even handle his checkbook. How does that happen? It's the fallen nature of people. Everybody in your family is, is doctors, but your sister faints at the sight of blood, right? Uh, we have had presidents who rise to that most dominant position and their kids are knuckleheads. This is a human being issue and it was the weakness of the priest system. So now consider Jesus just for a moment. And let's consider his leadership aspect as our priest. The, the text lists off a whole bunch of things about Jesus. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is the son of God. He is wise. He knows exactly what you need when you need it. He is righteous. He always does the right thing. He is graceful and offers us mercy upon mercy. He is an incredible uh, priest and an incredible leader and we should follow him. So because of Jesus's qualities, what I love about, what, what I love about this text is that Jesus is going to be our forever priest. And it's so much better than the old way of doing things. Because in, in, in a person's family line, you might get a great priest, followed by a terrible one, followed by a great one, followed by a terrible. It was so up and down for Israel. Jesus is now our forever priest. And he is good and righteous and merciful and awesome. And he is now our forever priest. And nobody can ever replace him. You know what the text says about Jesus? That he lived an indestructible life. How many of you know they tried to destroy him? Right, they took him to the cross. They nailed him to the cross. They tried to destroy him, but three days later, he rose again. They couldn't destroy him. And he is your forever priest. He is from the order of Melchizedek, not from the order of the Levites. And he is exactly the person you want in that position. If you are going to have a forever priest, you want someone who's good, righteous, merciful, wise, all that stuff. That's who you want as a forever priest. You don't want Cousin Eddie as your forever priest, right? You want a good, righteous, holy person, and Jesus is exactly that. So you know what the Bible says about him? I, consider this now. His love endures how long? His love endures forever, 
because he's a forever priest. His grace endures forever. His spirit endures forever. His sacrifice endures forever. And this is the second thing that the, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. I'm talking fast. I like this text, right? He says that Jesus is our forever priest and he's the perfect one to then make sacrifices for our forgiveness. And we're gonna pick this up next week. The sermon's gonna feel like it comes to an abrupt end. We're gonna, we're gonna pick it up uh, next week. But in verse 27, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about the other priests. And he says about all the other priests that, that came before Jesus, that they had to offer sacrifices day after day after day for the sins, for their sins and for the sins of the people. Jesus is so much better. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He has none. And God allowed, because he was the perfect, blameless, incredible son of God, God allowed his sacrifice to be made one for all. One, one sacrifice for all. So when you put your faith in Jesus, sacrifice for your sins does not need to be made again and again and again. Jesus' one sacrifice covers all your sins. And so it's better. It's, it's better. it's better. And so Jesus comes and he offers this one sacrifice for all, for all sins. He offers this one sacrifice so that we can know God and worship God in this life and in the next. It's an incredible thing. And I love the way the chapter ends. It says, for if the law appoints as high priests men in their weakness, all right? So he says, this is what the law did. It appointed men to be priests, even though they were weak. And you study the Old Testament. You can see these examples of, of these priests that were, they were terrible, all right? And so, and so they, they, were, they, they came in uh, to the law in their weakness. But the oath, talking about the new covenant that we're going to pick up next week, the oath, it came after the law, appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. There is no weakness in Jesus. He conquered the grave. The, 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 the law offered imperfect priests. They were full of weakness and sin. The New Testament offers us Jesus who is perfect, blameless, sinless, full of strength, and our forever priest. Amen? So we're going we're gonna to continue on this conversation in, in Hebrews 8 next Sunday. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for Jesus, who is our forever priest, uh, and so much better. I'm um, so much better. And I just pray that right now we would turn to him, and we put our joy, hope, and peace in him. We put our salvation in him because he is a faithful high priest. He does exactly what he promises to do. So we thank you for his work. We thank you for his grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you uh, would like to talk more about this faithful high priest, I'm going to get off to the side here. I'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to pray with you as well um, as we sing this song. Go ahead and stand for the invitation.